as you can see, if you're looking on the schedule, you may have thought this was our second to last forgiveness class, but we extended the class a little bit. So we have a few more. I just realized that I would be shortchanging some concepts if I combined it too much. Josh is going to be out of town one of the Sundays. And um, so anyway, it worked to fill it out a little bit more. So if you're reading along with our study, you have more time and you can catch up if you're behind. Otherwise, we'll just think about some of these concepts a little bit more deeply. But today we're going to um, think about how forgiveness is possible, understanding forgiveness. But I'll pray, and then we'll recite the Lord's Prayer together, emphasizing our call to forgive, our obligation, we might say, in light of God's forgiveness of us. The Lord's Prayer is on your sheet. Um, otherwise, I'm sure some of you have it memorized, but let me pray. God, thank you for our time together this morning. Help us to think carefully and rightly about forgiveness in light of the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. Help us to wrestle through the ideas of mercy and justice and to come to a deeper understanding of how they're held together at the cross. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Let's um, recite this together. Um, both as a way to get it into our memory and as a, a prayer to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good. Well, in the previous lesson, we considered the unfolding of forgiveness across the canonical scriptures. So we looked at the Bible as the book of forgiveness. And at the end of that lesson, we briefly considered the basis of God's forgiveness of us, which is the death of Jesus on the cross. And in this lesson... That's what we're going to examine more carefully. So sometimes you might hear somebody say you need to live out the gospel or um, change the way you live in light of the gospel. What we're trying to do is gain a better understanding of what Jesus actually did at the cross so that our lives will be changed because of it. Um, Keller begins by talking about the God of love and fury. That's a provocative title, isn't it? the God of love and fury. I am relatively uncomfortable with the juxtaposition of love and fury. I don't like his choice of the word fury, particularly because the term fury communicates rather differently than the common English designations of God's response to sin, such as wrath. So in no Bible translation will you find the fury of God is poured out on all mankind, or all people are under God's fury. We use the term wrath. I think fury communicates an unrestrained and uncontrolled emotional outburst. But God is not like a person that he should have an uncontrolled emotional outburst. So I would, I'm using the term fury still because Keller does, 
but I don't like the I don't like the term, and I think he hurts himself a little bit because he has we're already trying to work hard to say that God's wrath is not like human wrath. But then if you start talking about God's fury, now you have to work even harder to say it's not like human fury. And that's exactly what he does here. He says, when we see all the references to God's wrath in the Bible, we instinctively imagine God's anger must be like ours, and so we recoil. However, his anger is not wounded pride as ours is. God only gets angry at the evil destroying the things he loves, his creation and the human race he made for his own glory and for our happiness. So when you're reading Keller's book, the term fury needs to be understood quite differently than how you might understand it. Um, I think the last time I used the term was I was furious about someone who cut me off in traffic, maybe. You know, God isn't like that. So um, I will we'll get later on to why we need to imagine God's wrath and anger rightly. Part of the reason is that many Christians live as if God is about like just waiting for them to mess up so that he can stomp on them. And that's not the picture of God that we have in the Bible. So Keller is going to say that if you view God that way, you are living in relationship to God the way that a lot of children do when they've been abused by their parents. Um, you're, or neglected. You're living like a neglected or abused child. God doesn't want you to live that way. Now, of course, Keller, I think here, is trying to correct the notion that God doesn't care if you do anything in violation of his laws or commands. Um, God is just like a, a fairy rainbow love force. He's trying to combat that, and that's a problem too, as we'll discuss later on. Nevertheless, it's the meeting of God's love and wrath at the cross that provides the basis for forgiveness. It's the foundation of forgiveness because it not only makes it possible for God to forgive us without compromising his justice, but it also provides both a motivation and model for our own forgiveness to those who wrong us. If we can see that God forgave as an affected and offended party, then we too will be inclined to forgive when we are angry at the wrongs we experience. I think sometimes we like to say it's fine for God to forgive because he's God, but we treat it as if sin doesn't matter to God. It doesn't actually affect him or influence him or hurt him. And if we think God isn't hurt by our sin, then it doesn't mean anything for God to forgive us our sin, but God is hurt by our sin. And if we who have been hurt by someone else's sin can learn from that, then perhaps we'd be more inclined to forgive those who have hurt us. The greatest burden of what we're covering this morning, however, is to show how God's love and his wrath, how forgiveness and justice can coexist. And we'll have to start by looking at the Old Testament background. But before we jump in, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page that the fact of forgiveness and justice together coexisting is a problem. Do you sense the problem how, that we're addressing here? How can God be just and overlook injustice? How can God be holy and righteous, but forgive unrighteousness? Do you see the problem here? Um, I want to personalize it a little bit. Um, how can a person who has been sexually abused pursue justice toward their abuser and have a Christian obligation to forgive at the same time. 
So when we start to personalize the, the issues of justice and forgiveness, we often think of them as opposites, don't we? We'd say justice and forgiveness don't belong together. But if God is just and God is forgiving, how can that be? That, that's what we're trying to get at here. Um, I, I just want to make sure we all sense the problem. Because I think the first time I encountered this, I just didn't feel like it, there was any contradiction between the two. And that's not helpful if we're trying to see what, what's happening at the cross. So do you see a contradiction between justice or forgiveness, at least in the way that we experience life? Okay. Someone, okay, this is a good example. I'm just trying to make sure we're all on the same page. Josh was telling me about a counseling professor he had who was talking about a case scenario of if somebody hit your car and they've done damage to your car, um, you want justice. You want your money. Uh, and probably you want more than justice. You want vengeance. Not only do you want his insurance to pay for it, you want him to get a ticket. Uh, what does forgive? How does forgiveness relate to that? How can you pursue justice and forgiveness and no vengeance when it seems like these things don't belong together? Forgiveness, remember, is owning the debt, not requiring restitution. Okay, hopefully we've problematized justice and forgiveness sufficiently. But let's look at the Old Testament background. Uh, the Old Testament presents a complicated picture of God. And I will say that when I was like, I don't know, probably third grade, I decided to do this bi through the Bible in a year Bible reading challenge. And it was this text that puzzled me. And I, I could not understand it. I thought I could, I kept rereading it. I still remember this because I thought that there was an error in the Bible because it didn't make sense. And, and when God presents himself, it seems like he doesn't make sense to us. Nothing is clearer in the Old Testament than that God will do justice and that he cannot shrug, wink at, or ignore any evil or sin. At the same time, however, the Old Testament is filled with claims and promises that God is a forgiving God. So the Old Testament teaches that God forgives and that it is an astonishing, inexplicable gift. Here it is. The paradoxical harmony of God's justice and forgiveness is set forward in his self-description to Moses on Mount Sinai. God had just instructed Moses to reinscribe the stipulations of the covenant with Israel when God came down to meet with Moses personally in the cloud. God speaks his name to Moses. His name, Yahweh, is often represented in English translations as Lord with all capital letters, but that's God's name. Um, or Jehovah is a different way that it's often been taken. Y's and J's, German and English, it's kind of strange, but um, the tetragrammaton, the, the four letters. But this is how he defines and describes his very character in association with his name. Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And if the verse stopped there, we'd have no qualms. But there is a conjunction here, but, and as one of my 
teachers told me, whenever you find the conjunction but in a sentence, sentence, it's negating everything that came before it. So I'm sorry that I cut you off, but I had my own agenda. You're not sorry. So, so I always thought if, if ever there's a conjunction but, it's negating everything that comes before. And that's, I think, often how some people read this. But I do not excuse the guilty. I, maybe it would be better to render it at the same time I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. So the phrase, I do not excuse the guilty, is emphatic, communicating that in no way will God treat the guilty as if they were innocent. Although these statements appear in conflict, they actually remain in perfect harmony. We see that more clearly in the New Testament, where we see that God is both a a God of love and of wrath, and it's at the cross that we see this. But do do you sense the disjunction in that sentence? Long lines about God's love and forgiveness and mercy and long suffering, and then, but I do not excuse the guilty. There's tension there. It's uncomfortable. We have to try to understand how is it that it can all be true? And how is that a good thing? More than that, how do we mirror God in our relationships? As a brief aside, I'll say throughout the Old Testament, this verse is quoted. And often, when someone is in a right relationship with God at the moment, they stop the quotation before the but sentence. So in the Psalms, this happens a lot. But other times when the prophets are um, expressing judgment and not hope, it continues on. So I'd, I'd have to do a full survey to see every time it shows up. But I, when I read through the Bible with AJ and Matthew Wiedemann last year, we came across this multiple times. Um, so it is okay to quote just the part you like of that. But the other part remains true. So we need to think about our concept of God. Once again, I want to revise Keller a little bit. Keller does not make a distinction between love as an attribute of God and wrath as a response of God to sin. And we need to distinguish between the two. Many people wrongly believe that wrath is an attribute of God. It's not an attribute of God. Um, If you think that wrath is an attribute of God, you're going to live like a neglected child. God is always out to get me because it's in his nature and character to be expressing wrath. Nowhere in the Bible can you find a verse that says God is wrath, but you can find a verse that says God is love. Love is an eternal, abiding, inherent quality of God. In eternity past, God loved. Um, in, In the triune being, God has always been a God of love. God has not always demonstrated anger or wrath, or as Keller puts it, fury. We need to distinguish between those two because God's anger is only a response to a violation of his holiness and love. Um, We'll talk about that more. But many of us, whether it was a Bible college or even if you... (laughs) There's this uh, Bible artwork thing I have hanging on my wall in my office. It's the periodic table of elements, but it has attributes of God on it. One of them is wrath. 
It's not true. I need to take some white out and white, white it out. But wrath is not an attribute of God. It's a response of God that flows out of his love and holiness. Hopefully, as we try to emulate God, the only times that you'll show wrath and anger are out of response to love and holiness, you know, as part of your love and holiness. You don't want to be characteristically wrathful. The New Testament authors tell us not to be wrathful. So um, I'm making a distinction here that I think is more important than it seems in a classroom in lived experience. It's important if you believe that God is wrathful to the core of his being. Okay. There's never been a time when God did not demonstrate love. So we could say that God's wrath is his right response to the violation of and lack of participation in his holiness by his creatures. This is probably the most common way that theologians locate wrath as a response or as an action of God rather than as an essential attribute. So when, when God's creatures don't live participating in God in the way that they should, it's actually bad for them, isn't it? And God expresses wrath at that. But it's a loving wrath. Um, so if you have a kid who's about to grab a burner on the stove and you exclaim loudly, and maybe even they're scared by your exclamation, and you grab their hand and pull it back, if you were characteristically yelling and screaming and grabbing your kid every time they were trying to touch something, that you would not be a good parent. But you are being a good loving parent by preserving your child from burning their hand on the stove. It's not, do you get how these things relate? They're not opposed, but one is essential, love, and wrath is, as the philosophers might say, accidental. It's a mode of loving. Okay. With Keller, we can conceive of wrath as love in action. He wants to be clear that wrath, God's concern for justice, and love, the ground for forgiveness, are compatible. The Bible speaks of God's love acts and his wrath acts, but the two have to be held together or else we'll have a faulty understanding of forgiveness. Here's Keller's explanation. I think this is really helpful. If you see only a loving God who never says no, or if you only see an angry God who never says yes, it will distort your life. It will affect how you view and live your life in general. It will shape how you make your decisions, how you regard other people and how you think about yourself and how you relate to the world around you. Perhaps it is too simplistic, but not by much, to say that if you believe only in a God of love, you will live like a spoiled child. But if you believe only in a God of wrath, you will live like an abused child. That's what I was referencing earlier. I propose that a lot of personal counseling issues that you probably face have some connection to this. Um, are you living like a spoiled child who thinks God puts no restriction or obligation or responsibility on you? Or are you living like a neglected, abused child who believes God is always out to get you? We can't go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> but I, I, I would say just on a pastoral level, Almost every sin issue that you deal with will connect back to your view of God in one way or another. How you live, how you view yourself, how you relate to other people, how you respond to things really does connect 
often unconsciously, but very really, to your view of God. So I want to push you as we continue on here. If you look at your life and you kind of relate to the abused, uh, abused, neglected child in your relationship to God, where you primarily are scared of God or think God doesn't really care that much about you or that he's vindictive and is out to get you, hopefully you'll learn of God's great immeasurable love. If you're someone who's lived most of your life as a spoiled child, not thinking about God once, thinking God has no obligations on you or, or thinking God should never correct you, you need to learn about the other side of God's love, which is his concern for justice and wrath. When you live like a spoiled child, you don't live as a good human at all. You don't live well in community with other people. You cause injustices, but God is concerned about justice. All right, to avoid the rabbit hole, let's move forward. The wrath of God expresses love. Although the concept of God's wrath is unpopular in contemporary society, it is the wrath of God that demonstrates the depth of his love. Um, would you agree with that, that the wrath of God is on the outs, culturally speaking? People don't like to think of God as wrathful? I would say so. Um, I'd say one of the contributing factors would be people who walk around with signs that God says God hates and then fill in the blank with people who are practicing whatever the particular sin is. Uh, so think of like the Westboro Baptist sort of way of communicating God's wrath. That miscommunicates. That separates God's wrath from his love. Uh, that's not very Jesus-like in bringing wrath and love together. So as we rightly, I think, look at our world and are saddened that the world just hates the idea that God would express wrath over sin, um, we should also be careful that we aren't the kind of people who make them misunderstand God's wrath and reject it altogether. Um, God's wrath on disobedience to his law functions as a call to love, and it is itself an expression of his love. This notion is especially clear when the greatest of God's commands are understood to relate to love. So if we think God, God demonstrates wrath when people violate his commands, what are the commands that are coming to your mind? If there are commands not to do something, you're kind of right on the right track. But the problem is the greatest of God's commands are positive affirmations. Love God and love your neighbor. And when we fail to love God and love neighbor, we commit injustices and rightly deserve God's wrath. For God to pursue justice, wrath is part of the equation. Um, C.S. Lewis famously wrote about the impossibility of instilling an ethic of love without a God of wrath who models loving behavior and punishes unloving behavior. So I think everyone would agree we want a society where everybody loves each other. The only way you get that is with the biblical ethic and the biblical God. He describes modern moral education's efforts to develop character in students who have been taught moral relativism. So God doesn't care what you do, do whatever you want. That's moral relativism. Um, Lewis writes, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. So pause to hear what he's saying. We live in a world that wants to say there are no moral absolutes. Everything's relative. But also, I want you to live virtuously. Do you see how that's incompatible? Um, what is virtue if you can't measure it by moral absolutes? 
Um, we laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. In other words, if all moral virtues become relative value, values and social constructs, there's no longer an ought that requires loving treatment of others rather than their exploitation. The love and wrath of God in connection with moral virtues, particularly the virtue of love, grounds moral stability. So what Keller's trying to say here is if you get rid of God's wrath in response to a violation of love, you don't really have a foundation to say that people should love each other. All you have is moral relativism that says do what's best for you, even if that's exploiting other people. Um, committed atheists, I think, don't have very many grounds for virtue. Um, I've listened to some podcasts where moral or committed atheists will say, you don't need God to have um, a, a virtuous society. But when they're pressed, they never provide the grounds for what that would be. They appeal to something like common human decency. But the problem is, in common thinking, humans evolved apart from any work of God. There's an atheistic evolutionary theory that says you should do what will be best for you and your tribe, your clan. And that often includes the exploitation of other people injustice. So the whole point here is if we're going to have a theology of forgiveness that's actually self-giving and grounded in love, you have to start with God and his love that does demonstrate itself in wrath. Keller goes on to point out, okay, okay, any questions up to that point? Because these, these are some separate but very interconnected ideas I've hit so far. Okay, so in our current world, we're experiencing a very strange thing where people are confused that Christians would say that God would demonstrate wrath. For all of human history, what would have been bizarre is a God who showed love. What was normal is a wrathful God, and not the kind of God of the Bible, but, but gods that have um, just uncontrolled bouts of fury, inexplicable. They just get set off. They have short fuses. The gods of the ancient world were unpredictably angry. They could get upset at you for acting in one way today, and you could do the same thing tomorrow, and it wouldn't bother them. Um, God is not like that. But for most of human history, humans had no problem saying deities are angry, and we have to watch out for their zaps of lightning. It's only in our modern society that we have a problem with God expressing anger. Ironically, the only way that society has been able to get to a place where you could question an angry God is the fact that the Christian gospel communicated the love of God so clearly that it redefined our expectation of deity to expect our deity to forgive and love. So the tables were reversed which is basically built on a misunderstanding of the gospel. But it's only because of Christianity that people can say God shouldn't be wrathful. It's very strange. Um, but people document this all the time. Uh, most of our modern assumptions about God come from an overcorrection of bad assumptions about God that, that have happened with the spread of Christianity. Um, I won't say too much more on this, but a lot of atheists out there will say Christianity is needed because it brings about 
good. It changed the way that humans function for thousands of years. And it's only in the last 1,500 to 2,000 years that societies have become what they have become. And it's almost always connected to the spread of Christianity. Um, so even atheists these days are saying, don't get rid of Christianity. We don't believe in this God personally, but we believe in the system of this God where there are moral absolutes, where there's judgment for injustice and wrong, but where there's also the possibility for forgiveness. Um, that, it's, it's been an amazing turn. I just, on our church podcast, did a talk with a, a guy from another church talking about this phenomena, and the whole new atheist, the angry atheist, Richard Dawkins and the like, they're old news. No one cares about them. Um, so if you hear pastors still preaching against Richard Dawkins, that's, I mean, a thing. But that's not the issue. Um, even the atheists are saying we need a cultural Christianity. It's, it's strange. What we need now is to say we need a real Christianity. Um, we need an authentic relationship with God. So back in the, the old atheists were saying, the angry atheists were debating whether or not Christianity was true. They all said it wasn't. But then they came up with another problem, and that is they saw goodness going away. So now they're saying Christianity might be good, and so maybe we need it, um, which makes sense because we believe, um, especially if you've been in classical school, you've heard about the good, the true, and the beautiful. God is the source of all good truth and beauty. Jesus himself says, I am the truth, right? So it's no surprise. But uh, all of this to say, I'm encouraged by a lot of atheists who are saying we need to be functionally Christian. Uh, that should help our society, but we need to go beyond that and say we need to be really Christian. We need to um, truly know God. Otherwise, it's always going to be out of convenience and never out of a response to God's love. Um, in that, I've just summarized the, the section. Let's move on to the love of God expresses wrath. Here, Keller tries to help us see how, how love sometimes is demonstrated with anger, um, with wrath. Uh, he appeals to one lady who writes this, real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Let that sit with you. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. If um, you sinned against somebody and they were upset with you about it, I think you would ultimately know it's because they care about you and the relationship that you have. Um, so, but if that person just stopped caring, as soon as someone stops caring, you can't love. There's no love without care. As soon as there's indifference. So you see this often in um, couples who have had marital issues, who they, they are upset with each other. And we talk sometimes with, in premarital counseling, we'll talk about how there are, there are good kinds of fighting and arguments with your spouse. And it's really an expression of love, a commitment to work through the hardship. And it's often when, when spouses stop, stop fighting, when they just give up, that it's hard for there to be any future in that marriage because they're just indifferent toward each other. For God to stop caring, for God to become indifferent to our sin, to stop being angry about sin is for God to fully hate us. 
I think that's the way for you to, in part, bring love and anger together. It's by separating anger and hate. The opposite of hate is indifference. It's not caring. Uh, these things are somewhat counterintuitive, paradoxical, because they bring us to the end of the poles. When we live in the middle, when people are arguing all the time, we know that they don't quite love each other the way they ought to. But when you go to the extreme ends of both sides, uh, that's what you end up with. And when we talk with people, I think that if, when people can't comprehend how God could love and show wrath for sin, talk about this. The absence of a response to sin is indifference to it, which means that God doesn't love the people who were sinned against, and God doesn't love himself, and he doesn't love his creation. He's just indifferent towards it. All right, Tim? Well, a lot of people do. Yeah, yeah. It's, they do, but it yeah. just doesn't make any Yeah, it's not rational, it's not logical, but a lot of people would want to affirm that God is indifferent to sin, or they just say there is no such thing as sin. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, it's not the people out there who are saying that that I'm more concerned about. I'm concerned about us who functionally live as if God is indifferent towards sin. Um, that's not everybody here, and that's none of us all the time, I don't think. But we can get into those modes where we, we start to become indifferent towards God, which is the opposite of loving him. All right. Oh, go ahead, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, Tyler's asking, okay, if, if God doesn't become indifferent, then he never fully hates, but doesn't God hate sin? Um, so you're asking a good question. One of the things that you have to learn when we're talking about God is all human language is an analogy. We can't speak fully and comprehensively about God because God is other than. Um, we're other than God. Um, we are from God. But even our language can only participate in reality to a certain degree. So I think it's right for us in common language to say that God hates sin. And what we mean by that is that God is opposed to sin. We're talking more about relational hate, not positional. Um, uh, yeah, we're talking about a relationship, not a position about something. Um, but even in God's, you know, this, is, this takes us way too far afield as well. I would still affirm that God never fully hates, which is why we have to affirm things like the doctrine of hell and eternal conscious punishment, because God never becomes fully indifferent to sinners. If he did, then the annihilationist view where people just disappear into thin air after death would make a lot of sense to me. Um, but God doesn't become indifferent to them or to their sin. So I, I think truly hating would result in annihilationism. Um, be gone, never exist again. So I think that's my big problem with annihilationism philosophically is because God continues to relate and he never relates with indifference. Does that answer your question or no? Okay, so let me help you out here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was wondering if anyone was going to bring this kind of thing up. Keller doesn't address it, but I, but I will. And this is how I'd address it. Um, we use language in moments of time to express experience and reality, um, but our language is always dynamic. It's moving because life is dynamic. 
And what I'm going at here is that kind of language continues that tension between God's pursuit of justice and his offering of mercy and forgiveness. And what we find is that God never fully and finally hates the wicked, um, particularly as we see the gospel come about in And even in God's treatment with the nations and other people, he always provides them an opportunity to connect to his forgiveness. So he has not staunchly um, given up on the wicked. God, God hasn't set them aside. He always has a path for repentance. And because of his mercy and forgiveness, hate never reaches its fullest extreme. So I'd say there are degrees of hate, uh, but the final form of hate is indifference and God does not become indifferent to anybody. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, I'll reframe it for you so you can track with the rest of the class. The final form of hate is the forever dissolution of a relationship. So when you dissolve a relationship forever, when you give up on a person, I would say when you become indifferent, take that word out, but when you no longer, when you are committed to never relating to a person again, you've cut them off and they can never experience your forgiveness, right? So that's what he's saying. If you hate somebody, the final form of that is you never will relate to them again. Um, They're out of your life. God doesn't do that. Um, God doesn't become indifferent. He's always relating to and with. We have to move on. I don't want you to get hung up on that wording, but basically, Tyler, what he's saying is that by Jesus, yeah, by Jesus dying on the cross, God didn't give up on the world. If God had not entered into the world in Christ, he, it would seem as if he were indifferent to us and we wouldn't know his love. But the opposite of that indifference is God's great love. Yeah, okay, we gotta move on. Um, and yeah, keep thinking about it. I don't, want to, I don't want to press that word too much. But what I do want to press is that giving up on somebody is the end of love for that person. And God, what he's trying to say is God doesn't give up on. Um, okay. How is it 942? We didn't even get through one chapter. I'm trying to think about how to proceed here because... Um, We are so behind. But I think this is good. Um, We have to, the the whole point is that love and wrath are not diametrically opposed. And that on the cross, mercy and justice meet. Forgiveness and justice. Both sides of the wrath love, holiness, wrath. All of it comes together in Jesus. Jesus bore the wrath of God out of love. And here's the thing, Jesus is God. So I think in the popular imagination, God the mean father sends his unwilling son to die on a cross. And that's unfair, divine child abuse. That's not what's going on in the Bible because Jesus is God. God himself bore the wrath. He didn't put it off on some unwilling victim. He himself came as the substitute, the second person of the Trinity. God suffered for our sin. Um, 
That's where love and mercy come together. So how does this relate to forgiveness? We've said, do you remember from, from the beginning, those four movements from the parable? First, you name the offense, and then you take pity, and then you own the debt, and then you release the offending party. While on the cross, God himself named the offense, the sins of the world. On the cross, God himself took pity on us. Jesus looks on people with compassion. On the cross, God himself, not some third party, God himself owned the debt, paid the penalty. And through the work on the cross, God releases the offender to a relationship with him, just as a king released the undeserving servant to become a full citizen in the kingdom. If our forgiveness is grounded in that, at the cross, then our forgiveness has to take that same shape. Even, and it has to be costly to us. We all want to forgive until it's costly. Um, the result is that God creates a community of reconciliation where we don't nurse hatred in our hearts, where we actually confront people directly, where we don't seek revenge or bear a grudge, but instead love our neighbors ourselves. This has been God's plan forever all the way back in Leviticus. Um, I think in the interest of s continuing the classes we need to, I'm, I'm not going to try to rehearse any of this or pick up any of this next week. I would encourage you, though, to read this section. It's shorter than what the book would be, especially that section where it talks about God and abuse. I think many of us know people who've been abused sexually or physically, who struggle, and maybe that's someone here, and there's a struggle with knowing how can God offer justice and forgiveness at the same time? How do I move forward here? I, I tried to put a lot of detail in here so you can read some of that, um, drawing from a lady named Rachel Den Hollander and her paper, her and her husband's paper presented at the Evangelical Theological Society. Um, read this kind of stuff, but the point is that love and wrath come together in Jesus Christ on the cross, and that ought to shape our pursuit of forgiveness and justice without separating the two. Um, if we give up on justice, as he says in the Leviticus section, we become culpable. Um, we can't give up on justice. Neither can we avoid forgiveness. All right, that brings us to the end. I'm so sorry that I did not get us, I did not use the time well, but hopefully these, this has been stimulating and helpful, and I'd be happy to talk more after as well. Thanks.